0: What is glory for the Christian? Where do we get our idea of glory? We can think of many quotes and references. What came to my mind first? was Spartans prepare for glory. Anybody else remember that? Most women will probably not watch that. But guys, we watch 300 and we all want to charge into battle. And for the early Greeks... Their whole society, their whole glory, was based on being able to die as a legend on the battlefield. They thought that if they won a battle, that their name would go on forever, that glory would be attached to their name and their accomplishments. So when they said Spartans prepare for glory, they meant it. There's another quote maybe closer to our time frame, Vince Lombardi. Any football fans know who Lombardi is, you can hear his gravelly, nasally New Jersey accent saying the real glory is being knocked down to your knees and then coming back. That's real glory. That's the essence of it, according to Vince Lombardi. Maybe a little more arrogant, a little bit further in the past. During the Renaissance, there was a man named Machiavelli who was an Italian Prince, but also humanist philosopher. Here's what he said about glory God is not willing to do everything and thus take away our free will and that share of glory which belongs to us. An Italian narcissist, go figure, not the first and will definitely not be the last. So, is that how we view glory the way they view glory? Is glory personal victory, personal gain, and personal triumph? For our sake, in our recognition. Maybe we come a little bit closer to home. Charles Spurgeon would pierce through all the outside voices and get to the heart of it. Charles Spurgeon said, You will never glory in God till first of all, God has killed your glorying in yourself. Amen. So that's the, the negative aspect of it. We need to die to ourselves to be able to find our glory in God But then the positive aspect of it, I love what Elizabeth Elliot said. This will be up on the screen as well. Think of what God has given an acorn. It is a marvelous little thing, a perfect shape, perfectly designed for its purpose, and perfectly functional. Think of the grand glory of an oak tree. God's intention when he made the acorn was for the oak tree. His intention for us is The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Many deaths must go into our reaching that measure. Many letting goes. When you look at the oak tree, you don't feel that the loss of the acorn is a very great loss. The more you perceive God's purpose in your life, the less terrible the losses seem. Elizabeth Elliot Is a great pillar in the faith. You have a chance to read her biography, read about her husband, Jim, just amazing missionaries. In one more, to take this right into our text, the great Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs says this Glory follows afflictions, not as a day follows the night, but as the spring follows the winter. For the winter prepares the earth for the spring. So do afflictions sanctified prepare the soul for glory. Most of us came from somewhere other than Florida. You know what winter does, and you know the amazing process of seeing the ground come back to life. In winter, it seems like everything's dead and nothing will ever live again. And sometimes that's how it feels in the midst of suffering. And I love how he compares that to sanctification, that going through that suffering is preparing our soul for glory. The blossom and the beauty of spring. Let's look at this text and hopefully those quotes from our faithful brothers and sisters will help us put this into context. Turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 for me. Our text this morning is going to be from 12 to 19 to the end of the chapter. If you've heard me say at least once that you may want to ignore the, the headings in your Bible, they are helpful. But sometimes they separate a thought that shouldn't be separated. So I'm actually going to read from verse 11 all the way to 5:1. And if you remember what we do in our Bible studies, what's the first thing that we look for when we get into the Bible studies? Repeated words. And I'm going to read from 4:11 to 5:1. These are three different sections, but it's connected by one theme, one word that we're going to focus on this morning. Let's start in 4:11. Justin talked about last week the practical aspect of living out what Christ has done for us. And what is the purpose of it in verse 11? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Anyone catch that that word? Braden had his hand up quick. Glory. Glory. Absolutely. Let's pray. The whole reason we are here is for your glory. The whole reason anything is here is for your glory. Lord, anything we find good and marvelous and wonderful is because it reflects your glory. And anything that we find detestable and ugly and sinful is to remind us to run from it, to run to your glory. Lord, remind us of how great and majestic you are. Help us never to get stuck in our trials, never to get stuck in our sufferings, never to get stuck on ourselves but to look at your glory who walked here on earth as our sacrifice, as our ransom, to call us to share in that very glory. Help us to always look forward to the glory that is to come and to celebrate when your glory will be on full display on this earth once again with no sin, no pain, no fear. This morning, I just pray that you are glorified in this message and that we are encouraged, that we are called by your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, like I said, these are three separate separate sections brought together by one word. And when Peter gets into personal terms like he does in verse 12, he becomes pastoral again. He says, beloved, beloved. It's a term of endearment. I love you, I care about you, I want you to know this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is what good biblical counseling looks like This is a pastor leaning across the table at someone who probably experienced real persecution beatings insults tortured spit upon and he leans over and said beloved don't be surprised beloved these trials will come beloved you're sharing with Christ beloved you will share in his glory. So when we encourage one another, when things don't make sense, we point to Christ. When we need encouragement, we point to Christ. When we need to be humbled, we point to Christ. That is what faithful Christian encouragement looks like. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials. This is A picture and analogy that Peter uses over and over again. Uh, This is trial by fire. This is the the smelting process. We've talked about this a few different times. We've talked about taking a a raw ore, gold, silver, and turning up the heat to remove the impurities and how that applies to our lives and how that takes someone who is but needs to be refined, needs the, the dross and the impurities to be taken out. It tests the, authentic, the authenticity of our faith, but it also strengthens it. Just like turning up the heat will strengthen those precious metals and will give us that faith that is more valuable than gold that Peter tells us in, one, in chapter 1, verse 7. The most valuable commodity to our God is a faith that has gone through the trials that has come out stronger and more rooted in him. And God uses those trials to test us for our good and for our glory. And hopefully you'll see that by the end of this, that there is a purpose through all of this. The world, like we saw a couple weeks ago in four, uh, verse 4, they're surprised when we don't act like them. They're surprised when we don't run around and do the things that they do. They don't cele- we don't celebrate the things that they celebrate. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're gone. Nothing in this life has any meaning. It's just a vapor. And that could be the, the, the motto of our modern culture. And Peter uses the same word that they were surprised when we don't act like them. We should not be surprised when they don't act like us. When the world persecutes us and ridicules us and insults us for the name of Christ. Don't be surprised. It's not strange, but expected. It comes along because if Christ suffered and we were to be like him, then how can we expect to get through life without any suffering? And if the world has declared war against our Lord, who are we to expect to not get caught in the fray? But rejoice. Verse 13. Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Think about this. Have you ever thought about the glory of God that Moses couldn't look at, that the Old Testament just alludes uh, alludes to, that is shown in a glory cloud that hovers over the temple, that the glory of God was personified, came down to earth and walked, In human flesh. The glory of God on full display. And what does the world do to the glory of God? Subjected him to ridicule and trials and sufferings. If the most beautiful thing to ever walk the face of this earth came to suffer, what should we, who are ugly, And sinful and not worthy of God's glory, expect when we are called by his name. And if we share in Christ in every regard, we share in his suffering. We also share in his glory. Because many times we're still living like acorns. When Christ has called us by his name, and in reality he sees a beautiful oak tree. Christ suffered in glory, excuse me, Christ suffered on this earth before his return to glory. And we bear his name, so what should we expect? And what should our response be? This is craziness, right? Rejoice and be glad. How can we rejoice in the midst of suffering? One of the most encouraging passages in all of scripture is Philippians 4. Turn with me there. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. This is so telling of what the life of a believer is. Philippians 4, verse 4. We've all heard these words Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And I will tell you, you don't know what true rejoicing is. Are you listening? You don't know what true rejoicing is unless you've rejoiced in the midst of suffering. You don't know what it means to rejoice unless that's your only option. You have nothing left. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If we were to be guarded in Christ Jesus, we should pray like Jesus prayed. In his moments of greatest affliction, what did he do? The night before, he was to go to the cross, or he was, go to, he was to go to trial. The night that he was betrayed, in his affliction, he prayed. He went to the Father. From the cross, in the height of affliction, the sins of the world and the wrath of God poured out on him. What did he do? He called out to the Father. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. You know what passes all understanding? Being put to death for your God and still crying out to Him. And still trusting Him. Being abused and suffered and insulted for the name of your God and still rejoicing in Him. That passes all understanding. But that peace is something the rest of the world will never know. And we can rest. As we'll see in our next verse back in 1 Peter. Because the spirit of glory rests on us. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Alright, so what have we seen so far? We've seen trials in verse 12. We've seen suffering in verse 13. And we've seen insults in verse 14. Yeah, sign me up. Come on, follow Jesus. We've got trials, we've got sufferings, we've got insults. How many of you, if the gospel was presented to you like, like that, would have just run for it? It's only half of the story. Because those are true for a time. We can't paint Jesus if everything went the way we think it. It should. We can't paint Jesus as if there was no sufferings, and we can't paint the Christian life as if there is no suffering. We have to be honest with each other. It's coming. If you bear the name of Christ and you bear it boldly, it is coming. Trials, sufferings, insults—all belong to Christ. And if we bear His name, we will share that with Him. And we should. We should be thankful to share it with Him. But it's not the end of the story. If we share in his sufferings, as Peter tells us, we will share in his glory that is to be revealed. Sign me up for that. The glory of Christ, majesty, righteousness, power, perfection, eternal communion with the Father and the Spirit. Sign me up for that. Even if it takes suffering and trials and insults in this life. This verse, verse 14, shows us our Trinitarian identity. It shows us how we are brought into something greater than ourselves. Look at this verse again, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, that's the name we bear, Christian, you are blessed because if you truly are a Christian, the spirit of glory rests on you. Jesus said, it is better for me that I would leave So that my spirit would come to guide you and teach you to remember all things. And that spirit is the glory of God. The Father's glory was personified in the Son and walked on earth. And through the spirit it rests on those who are called by his name. In Christ... Just like you cannot separate the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from one another, we cannot be separated from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in their work in our lives. The Christian glory is wrapped up in the redemptive plan of our God throughout eternity. And our glory is not a passing thing, it is a growing thing. Like that acorn that every year looks more and more like a mighty oak. until the shell is long gone and, and forgotten. I want us to keep that picture in our mind. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you can turn on pretty much any television station that you watch pretty much. You don't have to wait too long. Someone will be insulted for the name of Christ. It happens every day. And if you wear that boldly, people are going to ridicule you. People are going to insult you. They did it to our Lord. So you're in good company. Verse 15. But, whenever there's a but in scripture, they always want you to pay attention. But, be careful. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. Essentially, if you're going to suffer, suffer for something worthwhile. Suffer for righteousness sake like Christ did, like Christ told us to. Don't be like our culture and have these self-inflicted sufferings where you bring these things upon yourself and wonder, how did I get here? What happened? Why me? This isn't putting yourself into situations to create suffering, to get people to look at you, to get people to feel sorry for you. This is, standing, this is saying, I'm going to stand with the Lord of, of glory and I don't care what you throw at me. But I'm not going to be like the world. So Peter had to make sure, like, this isn't just suffering for the sake of suffering. Hopefully you understand that. We can keep moving. Verse 16, yet, another transition. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. That name, this was a term that the Christians wore. It was like a curse word in the first century, that name. They're attached to that name. The governors and the proconsuls didn't even want to say the name of Jesus. The elders, the rabbis, they didn't want to say that name. It was a byword. It was a curse word. Because at the name of Jesus, trouble started. But by that name, the name that we bear as Christian, it is our portion with Christ. It is our association, our belonging to him. And with him, we can suffer as he did. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 with me. What does it mean to bear that name as a Christian? What does Jesus himself tell us to do? We spent several weeks... On the Beatitudes. This is the culmination of the Beatitudes. All of these things that are characteristics of the kingdom of God. And how does Jesus end this great description of what it looks like to walk like him? Verse 11. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's important because many times we think I'm afraid of what people are going to think about me. I don't want people to look at me a certain way. But Jesus is saying, if you do it on my account, that means it is credited to him. That means if they revile you, if they persecute you in his name, then what? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Turn with me quickly to Acts 5. I want to show you how this played out in the early church. And this is the piece that passes on all understanding, because this makes no sense to the world around us. Acts chapter 5, I'm is going to read verses 40, uh, 41 and 42. The apostles are arrested. They're preaching publicly. The Jews are arguing about what to do with them. Look at the response of the apostles, verse 40. And when they called the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. You know when you, you know when you fear the truth, when someone tells you, don't say that anymore. Do whatever you want, but don't say the name of Jesus. That name, listen how that comes up again here. And they let them go. They were just beaten, and they were charged never to speak the name of Jesus in public again. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for that name. For the name. Everyone reading this knows what the name was. In the first century, they knew the name was Jesus. That from the very moments that he came to earth The kings trembled. You remember Herod? How scared he was of the king that was coming to Bethlehem? The name of Jesus made all of these self righteous, arrogant, wicked men who wanted their own kingdom on this world tremble. Don't speak in that name. But what was the response of those who had just been beaten? Verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Amen. If only our lives and our witness could look like that. That name. We associate ourselves with so many different kinds of names. Our culture is obsessed with names. Male, female, young, old. Democrat, Republican, American, you go down the list. What names do we associate with? What names do we bear boldly? What names do we bear more boldly than the name of Christian? And what are those names that we draw our identity from so closely? Where do they get their glory? Is it in who we are? And the attention brought to us? Or is it the name of Christian? Can you imagine? I mean, think about this for a second. We're taught that as Christians, we're to put this this good face on and we're to convince everyone how much we have it together. But imagine for a second that everyone sees the person that you see when you're by yourself. And you're like, man, look at me. And imagine that person is spoken of in the same breath, in the same sentence as Jesus Christ. That we bear that name. Those of us who are broken, those of us who are just struggling to figure out how to live day by day, we are spoken of in the same breath, given the name of the Son of God. Our gospel is incredible. If we recognize that we are called by the Father to bear the name of the Son indwelt by the power of the Spirit, that should stir our hearts to exaltation. To just rejoice and celebrate who we are in Him. Rejoice in the glory that is given us in His name. Exalt that name by which we have been called. And everything that comes along with it. Suffering and glory verse 16 I just want to read this again before we get into 17 yet if anyone suffers as a Christian let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name the glory of the Christian should lead us to glorify God it is this reciprocal circle That Christ came down from his glory in heaven, died on a cross to give us an inheritance with him to share in that glory. And so in result, we should glorify God and not be ashamed of the name of Christian. Now we're about to take a turn here in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Okay, wait a second. Where did this text just go? I feel like, are are you just like me? Because when I read this this week, I read it about five times, and I'm thinking, where does this turn come from? Because, all right, we're talking about suffering, we're talking about glory, and then all of a sudden, judgment. So this is where it gets fun, and I'm going to be a a Bible nerd for a minute, if, if you don't mind, we're going to go on a tangent, and hopefully it, it's a helpful uh, tangent, this, this, this gets me excited, so um, bear with me, come with me, trust me, you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate it, but you know those, those scenes in the movies where the uh, plot is building and the drama is building up, and all of a sudden flashback 15 years ago, there, there, there's something we forgot to tell you, so this is more like flashback uh, 750 years. So, this is actually a prophecy from the prophet Ezekiel. And turn with me to Ezekiel. And you, you'll, you'll get where I'm going in just a minute. So, I want to set the stage for you. We're going to be um, in Ezekiel, we'll start in chapter 8. I'm just going to give you broad strokes. All right, so why is Peter bringing in judgment here? Why is this important? I want you to see that I've told you several times that Peter is a brilliant Old Testament scholar. And so Peter is weaving several themes together to get us to understand glory. All right, so let me, let me set the stage of where they are. We know that normally when the Old Testament prophets came, something was wrong. When Ezekiel came, starting in verse uh, 7 and 8, it's talking about the wrath of the Lord coming. In chapter 8 of, of Ezekiel, there are great abominations and idolatries in the house of Israel. People called by God's name are worshiping other gods, and there are wicked leaders who are leading people astray. They bear God's name, and yet they're an offense to his glory. That's chapter 8. Chapter 9 is God's wrath being poured out on them, and the idolaters killed, the land being filled with blood, starting with the elders of the people. And it's interesting that Peter's leading up to this, because next week we're going to talk about the role of elders. And those who are ruling in a false manner, those who are leading the people astray, they're going to be the first ones to be killed when the judge comes back. Then in chapter 10, the glory of the Lord that is carried by cherubim, this glory cloud is lifted off of the temple. God is saying, my glory no longer dwells with you. You are not worthy of me. I'm going to take it away. This is dire news for the people of God because that's the only thing they have It's the glory of God in the temple. But chapter 11, the gospel, suffering always precedes glory. The bad news always precedes the good news. Chapter 11, turn with me to chapter 11. I want to read a few verses. Chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Tell me if any of this sounds familiar. We we know this passage later on in Ezekiel. So remember where we are. Evil, judgment, and now God comes back to his people. Not they came back to him, he came back to his people. Verse 17. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all the abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them and the glory of Israel was over them. So the glory of God had left, comes back. Verse 23, and the glory of the Lord went up in the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now remember that, the mountain on the east side of the city. So where are we in in Peter? I was like, all right, a lot of you are saying, what are we doing here? So Peter is telling us the judgment has come. It's coming to the house of Israel first. It must come to the house of Israel first. The glory leaves, it comes back, it rests on the mountain that's on the east of the city. I know a few of you have been to Jerusalem. The mountain that is just east of the city. Anybody know what it is? The Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. Why is the Mount of Olives important? In Matthew 24 and 25, this is where Jesus sits down and teaches his disciples. They call it the Olivet Discourse. He teaches them about what's going to happen in the last days. These are the things that are to come. These are the things that are to, you're to watch out for and you're to have hope in me because these things must happen, but I've overcome the world. So the glory of the Lord is teaching people, it's teaching the disciples what's going to happen, what's going to come to pass in the very place where it's going to come to pass, where the glory of the Lord will return to the Mount of Olives. You following me here? Also, this is where Jesus ascended into heaven. So the glory of the Lord teaches on the Mount of Olives, re- returns to the right hand of the Father on the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah 14 tells us that when the Lord returns, when the great judge returns to judge the living and the dead, he will land where? Guess? Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives will split and will separate the wicked from the righteous. And out of it, for those who stand through the judgment, living water will flow. And the new heavens and new earth will be fed out of the Mount of Olives. So, Peter's getting you somewhere. We're not done yet. I could do this all day, but no, this is the last one. So, in Malachi chapter 3, the same judge, the same process of the judge coming back and the judge going to the house of Israel first. In Malachi chapter 3, The judge comes, and the the, the judgment of God must be poured out on the Levites first. Who are the Levites? Priests. Who does Peter tell us that we are in the second chapter? The kingdom of priests. When the judgment of the Lord comes back, it must come to the priests first. Why? Why? Malachi chapter 3 tells us that so their offerings may be purified before the Lord. The saints, us, the priests of God, judgment must come through the household of God first. So that they may be purified to give offerings to the Lord. Okay, bringing all of this full circle in our text begins with refining fire. And then goes to judgment. How do all these things fit together? The same refining fire that burns up and destroys the dross, that burns the impurities, that destroys the unrighteous, purifies the priests, purifies the saints. The same fire of judgment that will condemn some to destruction, purifies the those with whom the spirit of God rests. Do you understand how amazing that is? Maybe it's just me. But reading this this week, it just brought everything together. Because many times we read through a lot of these prophecies in the Old Testament. We wonder, how does, what does this have to do with me? How does any of this fit together? Peter's saying it all points to Christ. It all fits together in him. And it all is for our good. Because even the affliction, even the trials, even the fire, is to separate the impurities and to refine what is precious—the gold, the silver, the things that are precious in His sight. All right, verse eighteen. We're going to move along quickly in these in these last two. If you don't understand that, let's let, let's talk later. I, I want you to understand that. That is so important to our glory. Verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? I mean, this is just reiteration. Is actually quoting from Proverbs 11. If the righteous is scarcely saved, meaning we're saved by Christ, just, but just barely because without Christ we have no hope. And this is just a reiteration of verse 17. So those who bear the name of Christ have been refined, and they will stand stand in judgment because of Christ's name. But what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What will be the hope of those who don't obey the gospel? Here's what our problem is. Let me tell you what our problem is. So when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about being a Christian, the bad news isn't bad enough. Anyone following with me here? The bad news is not bad enough. When we talk about the gospel, we're only kind of bad. We're only mostly dead. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. What's missing is that the problem isn't great enough. Without Christ, the depth of our sin, the totalness of our depravity, the ungodliness that separates us apart from Christ should bring us to our knees. So much so that the righteous are scarcely saved. The problem is worse than you could ever imagine. There is no hope apart from Christ. Judgment and death and bloodshed are coming upon those who rebel against Christ. But the other part of it, the good news, is not nearly good enough. Because the good news is not just that we're ransomed to live some happy life now and a comfortable life on the clouds with Jesus forever. It's that even though we share in his trials and sufferings, we share in his glory. We share in his name. We share in an imperishable inheritance, inheritance that cannot be taken away from us ever. We bear the name of the Son of God. It is branded on us. And he will uphold us with his righteous right hand forever. Therefore, verse 19, here's the lesson. All of the information, here's the command. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Seems simple, right? Right? If you read this, it may give us some, some, some discomfort a little bit. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. It's not something we want to hear. We don't want to hear that my suffering is according to God's will. We don't want to hear that what I've endured, that God, who I know is sovereign, but somehow I, I like to think that He's not sovereign over my, my sufferings, that I'm apart from Him in my suffering. That makes us a little uncomfortable, that I'm suffering according to God's will. But if we know about our God, that he is unchangeable, that he is good, it should be an encouragement. Because ultimately, everything, even if we don't understand it, our refinement is for our good and his glory, even when it's uncomfortable. But what we should challenge ourselves with is what would really be uncomfortable is this, if this wasn't according to God's will, if my suffering was outside of the hand of God, if the trials that I endure, somehow God had nothing to do with, then my God would not be there with me. But if my God is with me when I celebrate and when I mourn, when I suffer, and when I rejoice, then whom shall I fear? Whom shall we fear? So because our God is with us in suffering and it is part of his plan, we can entrust our souls to him. This language is of of one who takes something of value and gives it to someone who is trustworthy. I am taking what is most valuable, valuable to me, my soul, the very essence of who I am, and I am entrusting it to my God who is trustworthy. I'm putting my soul in a safety deposit box to be held by the Fort Knox of the universe. Our God is faithful. And so we should be faithful and doing good because he made us, he called us, he gave us the name and the glory of his son. And his spirit rests upon us and preserves us and keeps us. And no trials or sufferings will ever change that. So how do we conclude this morning? Most of us are still afraid of losing that acorn, our old little measly shell of ourselves, forgetting that through Christ, real growth is an oak tree. And people try to find so many things to put their glory in, to find their identity in, But they're acorns, they're little shells of what God has created us to be. Christ is our glory. The Christian glory is that we bear the name of Christ and that we can boast in the cross of Christ and what he has done for us. So the next time trials come, next time suffering comes, next time fear comes, we can rest in our glory and remind ourselves of that. Just want to help you practice. Let's do this together, all together. Let's say, "Christ is my glory. Christ is my glory. I am a child of God." So, uh, Justin, Shreve, if you guys would come up, uh, and instead of reading, or excuse me, instead of praying, I want to read as a prayer, a great hymn. Uh, By Charles Wesley. It's number 58 in your hymnal if you want to read along. It's called Rejoice the Lord is King. And he gets this. He gets. That we rejoice in all things. And that we are reminded of the characteristics and qualities of our king. We can rejoice with him. I want to read the lyrics. And I'm also going to read the chorus. Each time because it should be a great reminder to us. Charles Wesley wrote these words. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Your Lord and King adore. Rejoice, give thanks and sing in triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice, again I say rejoice. Jesus, the Savior reigns. The God of truth in love. When he has purged our stains, he took his seat above. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. His kingdom cannot fail. He rures, rules or earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in glorious hope, our Lord and judge shall come. And take his servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say rejoice. As we sing this closing hymn, let's rejoice in our glory.